The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, 12-34. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Where We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are all people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, welcome, and thanks for joining us this morning. We are studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've been taking our time and going verse by verse. That's what we do here at Sacred City. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And uh, now this week, we are in our, really our third week in the the 15th chapter. This is our third week in the 15th chapter. And chapter 15, if you didn't know, is one of the most important books, most important chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, Verses 1 through 11 the Apostle Paul shows what, what to believe about the resurrection. Uh, he does that by proclaiming one of the earliest Christian creeds, um, a creed that was uh, a verbal or an oral tradition that was passed down, that was written down within 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this was uh, a creed that was proclaimed and was in, kind of written in stone before the Gospels were even created. Okay, before the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were even written down, um, that people said Jesus is Lord, and people went through that the kind of catechism, uh, the creed that Jesus was uh, lived, died, was resurrected, was seen over 500 witnesses, and you could go interview those witnesses if you wanted to. We talked about that first couple weeks. But now, in verses 12 through 58, and this is a really long chapter, we're not going to get through the whole thing today, obviously just another 20 verses, Paul shows us So in the first 11 verses, he shows us what to believe about the resurrection. And 12 through 58, he shows us how to live 
the resurrection. Okay? How to live in light of the resurrection. I feel like I am going to kind of lead you to the Grand Canyon this morning. Uh, we've only got a time for a glimpse. It's like um, we're driving by. I'm like, kids, roll down your window. There it is. Wave. All right, we're gone. Right? That's all I got time to do this morning. This is a chapter that I could spend multiple weeks on. But what I want, what I'm praying is that you, you drive by and you roll that window down and you look out and you see the beauty and the grandeur of the Grand Canyon and it inspires you in such a way that you spend the rest of your life studying it. You spend the rest of your life meditating on it and contemplating its implications. Because I think what we're going to talk about today is that big. It's that big. And many of us have a dumbed down version of resurrection. We have a dumbed down version of new creation. We have a dumbed down version of heaven. Uh, We've been dumbed down more than likely by our Sunday school teacher that had the flannel graph that, how do you depict this on a flannel graph, right? If you can't depict it on a flannel graph, then it's too deep for these kids, right? So we've got this idea that there's a separation between body and soul and that when we go to heaven, our body just kind of sits here and then we just float off to heaven somewhere to float around in a cloud. And I don't really know what we think anymore, but just, you know, it, it's pretty esoteric. It's out there, okay? And it's, it's not biblical. Now, if you haven't noticed around here, we are an extremely young church. I've done... Uh, three times as many weddings as I have funerals. And we have uh, far more babies being born than we have people dying. And that's a good thing, right? But it also creates an atmosphere where many of us can live our lives barely thinking about death. My experience, when people are confronted with death, what they want most is hope. The most common responses you see in our society today, whether it be Facebook or wherever it's at, when somebody passes away, the most common responses are rest in peace or they're in a better place. Now, it doesn't matter if the person in the casket was a drug dealer or a fun-loving family man. It doesn't matter uh, was he a man of faith or was he not a man of faith. For people here in the Quad Cities, it seems like that death ends in peace and rest no matter what a person believes about the resurrection and Jesus Christ. For Paul, what we're going to see here, that's a logical absurdity. If the historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, was not resurrected, that means his, what do we mean by resurrected? That means his physical body was reanimated not reincarnated, reanimated and recreated in a very physical way so that he still had scars on his hands. He could still eat fish and yet his body could not ever die again. It was a deathless body, a body that would never break down or decompose. Things wouldn't break, right? Things, the the back, right? The, the, The shrinking down of the posture, this body would never succumb to that. A body that didn't run on food and fuel, but the very power of God. For Paul, he's so bold to say in this text, if Jesus was not resurrected physically from the dead, never to die again, then there is no hope for life after death. And we are most to be pitied, he says. Now, in our day and age, do we really day and age do we really believe or do we have to believe in a physical resurrection? 
Can't Christianity be good without it? Right? Love your enemies. Be kind to your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The, the morality we get from the, from the Bible, the, the, the Christian love principles, it, you know, isn't this good? Can't we just take that and then, you know, resurrection doesn't really matter because, hey, Christianity is good for the here and now. Right? Helping the poor, standing up for the oppressed, giving people comfort in their, you know, freedom from guilt and for, given, offering them forgiveness. Isn't, it, isn't there just here and now benefits that, that should outweigh? We don't really have to believe in a resurrection. It just can kind of be whatever's good for you today. For Paul, Paul says absolutely not. Paul says all the morality, all the ethical principles, all the, all the uh, kind of principles that kind of lift, can lift up a society. He says all of those ho- hang on one hook. And that hook is the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection isn't true, Christianity is worthless. Look at verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 12. If you have a phone, Sacred City app, you can find that. Or you can find your, get an app on the Bible. There should be some Bibles in your aisle if you need it. Um, we're going to look at verse 12. We're going to go verse by verse. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So the, the church in Corinth, some people were doing what, I, what I'm just uh, talking about. They said, oh, well, we don't really need the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Many people in our society, we come to the Bible with the same thought pattern. We say, we know miracles are impossible. We know the resurrection of the dead can't happen. But what good stuff, we can still get some good stuff from this Bible. We don't believe in the resurrection, but we can get some good stuff. What does Paul say? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, no resurrection, preaching is in vain, faith is in vain, you're still in your sins and the dead are dead forever. For Paul, the resurrection is what made Christians. The resurrection converted people. It was the event that swallowed up all other beliefs and all other doubts. If Jesus Christ, the man, was more powerful than death, if heaven's future broke into the here and now where this new matter, this heavenly body, whatever that means, this new creation flesh could be seen and touched and heard and yet be eternal. No matter what this guy says, we better believe it, right? Paul had all kinds of objections to Christianity, all kinds of doctrinal objections, all kinds of personal objections. But when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him, all of those were swallowed up by the reality of the resurrection. I know this man was dead. I watched him die, right? I know he's been gone, and now he's here. So, Paul, 
when he's writing about the resurrection, he says, if a person doesn't believe in the resurrection, there, there is no faith. Their faith is futile. If they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that person is, there, is still in their sins. And therefore, when they die, they will perish. God will judge them for their unbelief and their dismissal of God's gracious gift of his son to cover their sins. And Paul goes on to say, we saw in verse 19, that if our faith helps us out, even if our faith just helps us out a little bit in this life, we are people most to be pitied. Right? Why are what, monogamy? What's a monogamy? Why? Why? Not taking advantage of people, not stealing, not trying to get more. I mean, in the end of this chapter, or in these verses, he basically says, if the resurrection isn't true, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says, just throw off all restraint and do what you want to do. We're the most to be pitied. I think there's this belief floating around our culture. It kind of goes like this. Oh, she found religion. Good for her. Whatever works, I guess. Whatever helps you deal with stress or helps you keep your marriage together or helps you raise your kids. It doesn't really matter what religion you are. Just pick one that works for you. Whatever works for you, go with it. Pragmatism. And this is just classic Paul. Paul goes, nope. Christianity is not primarily about how to make your life better in the here and now. Will it make your life better? More than likely, but it also might get you killed. It might get you fired. It might get you ridiculed. It might cause you to get passed up for the promotion. And if you think being a Christian or going to church is just going to make your life better, you've missed the forest for the trees. Christianity is all about resurrection. No resurrection, no Christianity. No hope. It's bleak. But look in verse 20. But in fact, I love it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay. Now the first fruits, what are the first fruits? This is where we're going to get into some heavy stuff today. The first fruits are uh, anytime someone's harvesting, you got to field full of corn. You go out and you get a basket full of that corn. That's your first fruits. You come in. Well, in our day and age, you'd come in, you share it with your family. You're tasting and seeing, okay, this is going to be a good crop this year, right? The first fruits is the, it's the, the, the beginning of what's to come. Okay. But in the old Testament, the first fruits is what belonged to God. So people would go out and they get to be the first fruits of their offering, the first fruits of their harvest, no matter what it was. And they would bring that to the temple. They would bring that to God and they would offer up their best, the first fruits to God. Now here, Paul says, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's the first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. Again, obviously, falling asleep means death. Well, what does that mean? Let's keep, let's keep reading. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Jesus 
resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. Those seeds have been sown into the bodies of all those who belong to Christ. So you see when it says, in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And then he qualifies who that all in Christ is, those who are in Christ, those who have been made alive in Christ. And when Christ comes back, all of those who have the seed of his resurrection, all of those who've received Christ into their heart by faith, all of those who have the seed of the resurrection, all of those will be resurrected like Jesus with newly created, recreated physical bodies to re-inhabit God's recreated world. Okay, So the end isn't going to heaven when we die. People die, they go to heaven. But the end result is Jesus Christ comes back. He's living right now in his new created flesh. He has a body. He's not just a spirit floating around somewhere. He has a body. We're going to see he's on a throne right now. And when Christ comes back the second time, every single person who's believed in the resurrection, every single person who's received the seed of the resurrection in them, they, no matter if they're dust in the ground, no matter if they've been cremated, no matter where they're at, they will receive a new physical recreated bodies that will bear on its, on its, it will be distinctly you and distinctly not you, distinctly a new you, right? Jesus had scars, but he looked a little bit different. And we will inhabit a recreated earth. Okay. He didn't just make this place to throw it away so we could float around in a cloud someday. The whole world will be recreated for his glory. Now, to understand what's going on here, he says, by Adam came death, but this, then he juxtaposes Adam with Jesus. See, this text is intimately connected to the Old Testament. If we want to understand Jesus, if we want to understand the gospel and the nature and the power of the resurrection, then we have to know the story of the Old Testament. Paul connects Jesus with Adam here. And he also quotes at least two Old Testament Psalms. Now, who was Adam? And what was his role in all of this? And I'm going to give it to you quick. Adam was what theologians call the federal head of the human race. He was our human representative. All of our DNA, all of our humanness was there in the garden of Eden with Adam. And God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. That meant Adam was meant to be a sub-creator. He was meant to... uh, He had a nature that he was made imago Dei in the image of God. So he's meant to be a sub-creator. He was meant to be a namer of creation, an image bearer of God who would exercise dominion over creation and fill the earth and subdue it. God was telling Adam in the garden, take what I have given you, listen to this, and make it better. For those of you who think the garden is like, you know, was just perfect. It was kind of perfect, but God put man there and said, take the garden, make it better. Be fruitful and multiply. Make music, make art, make culture, do geometry, send people to the moon, build great architecture, create a family, have fun. Adam, it says, would walk with God in the cool of the day, face to face with his creator. See, God had, God had given him one rule. He says, Adam, all of creation is yours. Build stuff, have fun, right? Expand your boundaries. Just stay away from one tree. This knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from this one tree. The rest is yours. 
Then Adam, we know most of us know the story, then Adam and his wife Eve, under the temptation of Satan, disobeyed God. They chose to rebel against God and God cursed Adam and God cursed Eve and God cursed all of creation with him. The curse was the just punishment, the promised punishment of Adam's rebellion from his creator God. And what happened is death entered creation. Physical death, spiritual death, emotional death, relational death, and all the pain and loss that comes with any kind of death. But here's the beauty. In the midst of this judicious scene of God's justice, God does something no one would expect. See, when I'm, if I'm creator, right? When I'm, when I'm getting my kids Play-Doh out and I'm mashing it in on those little things and it pops a little thing, right? When that little pop thing pops out, right? If it doesn't look the way it's supposed to, this creator goes and puts it back in and does it again, right? I squish it, start over. Our creator, the creator of the universe, chose to do something different chose to respond to sin and rebellion and a fracture of creation. He chose to respond in a different way. He doesn't destroy. He gives grace and declares a ray of hope. He prophesies. He speaks something. He says this, from Eve's offspring will come a man to reverse this curse. From Eve's offspring will come a man who will make all things right. This man will crush the head of the serpent, that's Satan, while being wounded, the serpent will bruise his heel in the process. So he'll be wounded in the process. And then God himself sheds the blood of animals and makes Adam and Eve clothes from the skin. And then he sends them out of the garden. And then everything God promised becomes a reality, right? Death enters the world. Adam and Eve, are, their relationship is broken. There's distance and shame and guilt between them. Right? Cain kills Abel. Murder takes place. The ground produces thistles and thorns and was hard to work. People died physically. People were dead spiritually, cut off from God. War, rape, greed destroyed humans relationally. The world fractured, the world broke. Verse 22, when it says, in Adam, all die. That's what it means. Every man after Adam, because of Adam's fall, every man has died. So what is God's response? Well, God said, I'm going to raise up a man through the lineage of Eve. So if you go back and you look at the history of the Hebrews, you look at the history of Israel, you see God electing and choosing and pulling men in and and, 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 uh, trying still to redeem, kind of looks like he's redeeming all of creation. We see men like Noah. We see men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David. But here's the problem. All of these men came from the same stock, right? They all came from Adam. They were all in Adam. So their lives and their leadership was a mixture of sin and grace. So many times, especially if you grew up in the church, you grew up with these men as heroes, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah. And then you read the Bible for yourself and you realize they're far from heroic, Their lives are full of greed and murder and drunkenness and chaos. They were prophets. They were priests. They were kings, but they were all, quote unquote, in Adam. Now listen, this is the hope and the anticipation 
of being the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament. Every time a man would get lifted up on a pedestal, every time a man would be promoted to prophet, priest, or king, they would go, is this the one? Is he the one? Is he the one that will crush the head of Satan? Is he the one that will set all things right? Is he the one that will usher in the kingdom and renew all of this brokenness, fix us relationally, bring us back in the line with God spiritually? Is he the one that's going to fix it and make the whole world right? Is he the one going to undo all the failures that we've done? Is he the one going to reverse the curse? See, this was the anticipation. When Jesus began his ministry, Matthew 4, 23 says he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing every disease and affliction among the people. So in the gospel, this you see this chorus, this anticipation for God's people. It gets louder and louder and louder. They're saying Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that's going to make everything right. He's going to reverse the curse and fix all of this broken world. And then all of a sudden, what happens? Right? This crescendo gets louder and louder and louder. And then it reaches, it reaches its crescendo on Good Friday. And Jesus dies and then silence. Everyone gets quiet. Just another cult leader. Just another guy, just another good man. Delusional, deranged, thought he was sent on a mission by God, thought he was the one, thought he was the Messiah. Just another one that proclaimed a lot, had a lot of big words, had a lot of fancy talk, did some cool things, but he's dead. We know the Messiah can't die. The Messiah is going to reverse the curse and defeat death. How could the Messiah die? Jesus, let that doubt linger for three days. And then everything changed. Everything changed. On Sunday morning, Jesus, when he defeated death and was resurrected. Okay, now let's just go, how? How did this happen? How did Jesus defeat death and was resurrected? He was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he came from a different stock. He wasn't in Adam. He came through Eve's line, but he did not come through Adam. His father was the Holy Spirit. His father was God. He wasn't born in Adam. Theologians have a big word for this, okay? It's called the hypostatic union. That means Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was fully God and fully man. So he could in his manhood, represent us before God. He was our new federal head. As Adam was the representative of the whole human race, now Christ can be our representative. He was fully God so that he was without sin. He wasn't born with that poison in his veins like we are. And therefore, death had no power over him. He was fully man, so he could sympathize with us and take our place under the judgment of God. Jesus was the perfect prophet. He was the perfect priest, and he was the perfect king that Israel had been waiting for. Jesus is the leader and the deliverer that all mankind longs for. As Adam was the genitor of the human race who would all die, Jesus is the genitor of the new human race that will be resurrected to life and life more abundantly. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ punched a hole in the fabric of creation where the future breaks into the present. This is why he's called the first fruits. The first fruits. You go out and you harvest the first fruits and it's, t- it's showing you what the future harvest is going to look like, right? So when we want to know what our future looks like, we need to go and look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruits of what is going to happen to all of creation has already happened in Jesus. When we see Jesus with a glorified body, we see our future. When we see Jesus with a glorified body, we see the future of the whole world, all of creation, not just humanity. Look at verse 24. Then, so here we have this picture. Christ is the first fruits. When Christ comes back, He's going to harvest everyone in Christ, everyone who's in Christ. They're going to get, whether they're in the grave, whether they're wherever they're at, whether they're alive, they're going to get a new created physical body like Jesus. That's going to happen at the resurrection. Okay, then what's going to happen? When Christ comes back, then what's going to happen? Look, verse 24. Then comes the end. Now that word. <laughs> It's funny because you read that, then comes the end, and then, and then it goes on, right? Which is weird because if you're reading a story, right, or you're watching a movie, the end. Everybody gets up, right, cleans up their stuff that they had there, right, gets their popcorn, and they leave. They exit the theater. Well, that word end, it's not a great translation. I mean, it does mean that, but it's not a great translation. If, you, if you're familiar with it, that Greek word is called telos, Okay, we talked about it before, like a telescope. It's, to, it's the goal of something. It's not the stopping point. It's the end result. It's the purpose for all things. It's the goal. It's where we're headed. Okay, So when it says, here comes the end, he's saying, this is why we were created. Okay, Look and see what it is. Then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom... To God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So when Jesus comes back, there's going to be, uh, his rule will be united, his rule will be complete. Everything that is out of line with Christ will be put under subjection. Okay, and it, it might that might mean rulers and powers and kings, or it might mean... Um, uh, like principalities, like, like powers itself, like you're going to see in this next verse. Look, because it says, all enemies will be put under his feet. Look, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when Christ comes back, death will be destroyed. All of death's power will be removed. Christ will reign over death. And all of his people will reign over death. And all of creation will have death removed from it. Let's keep reading. The last enemy to destroy is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So he's put, God has put all things under Christ. And he's really going to go through that. Let's just go all the way down to verse 28. 
Let's do the last, ver- the last part of this verse. Here's the goal, right? And then the end will come that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. See, this is what's happening. The one promised in the garden, the one who would fix all things, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would remove the curse, the one who would remove death and destruction and pain from all of creation, that one has come. And that one is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he Through his death and resurrection and ascension, he is reigning over all creation. Though we don't see it, when he comes back, it will be visible and it will be final. And everything will be put under subjection to him. And in that moment, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God. And God, that's not just the Father. That's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be all in all. God will be with his creation again. We can walk in the cool of the day with God again. We will be made new again. We'll have new recreated physical bodies. All right, what do I mean by that? If we stood in front of God right now, we would die. We cannot see him. Any man that got a glimpse of him fell on his face and said, woe is me. I like to say that's the glory of God. We are made for something different. We're unglorious and we can't stand in that presence. Well, I want a God that I can touch. Well, I'd like a sun that I can touch. And it doesn't quite work out that way. You get close to the sun, you gone, right? Same thing with the father. But in the new creation, we'll have a new body made out of different stuff. Physical, yes, but different. Okay, I don't know it 100%. I don't get how it happens. But we could stand and look in the face of the sun and not be burned, right? And in fact, new heavens and new earth won't even have a sun. It says that, that God himself is our light. Second Peter 1.4 says this. What does it mean? God will be all in all. This is the Grand Canyon, folks. I'm going to tell you. This is the Grand Canyon. Right? You can spend the rest of your life looking into this. Second Peter 1.4 says that believers will become, listen, partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. The future... New creation is better than the Garden of Eden. People think that we're just starting over. It's going to be like in the the garden. No, it's going to be better than the garden. New heavens and new earth is better than the garden. Death will be destroyed. Temptation will be gone. God will be all in all. And we will behold a beauty beyond our wildest imaginations. And we will be made like him. Now, I'm going to go, if you have your Bibles, open up Revelation 21. I feel like I need to go here. Revelation 21 gives us another picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Another glimpse of what Christ is going to do when he comes back. Revelation 21. Listen, here it is. I'm going to read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. That's the reality. Listen, believers, Christians, that's the reality that's broken into your life. When you believed in Christ, the resurrection happened, not only in Christ, but the resurrection happens in you. And the seed of those first fruits are there. Keep reading. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, this is Jesus. I am making all things new. Beautiful. He's making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then listen, to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, as beautiful as the new heavens and the new earth is, there is a clear juxtaposition. There is another place. That's not good. Everyone doesn't get to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. It sounds like here he says only the thirsty. Only those who come to him for drink. Only those who come to him for satisfaction. Only those who come to him and need water. He'll give us water. Everyone doesn't rest in peace. Everyone doesn't go to a better place. Only those who have placed their faith in a resurrected Messiah will experience this new life. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Now, do other religions have other ways to God? Yeah, they do. But none of them have a resurrected Messiah. They have a spiritual resurrection. Some of them have a spiritual resurrection who floated off and nobody saw him, but he's alive somewhere. No other religions have a resurrected Messiah who walked and talked and was witnessed by over 500 people. We do. Christianity does. Jesus himself says, I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. And now listen, I, I can't avoid this. Did you see of those who, 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 who come to God and they don't, they're not thirsty. They don't receive satisfaction from him. They don't receive salvation from him. And they're going to go, it says here to the lake of fire. Right? We don't talk about this very often. Did you see who led that list? You see who led that list? Look at it again. The one who conquers will have his heritage, but I will be his God and he will be my son. But 
As for the cowardly, faithless. Now, if you're leading, if you're writing a book and you're going to talk about people, let's just say it, you're going to talk about people to go to hell. What do you lead with? <laughs> right? You're going to, typically, you're going to lead with child molesters, right? You're going to live with some aberrant behavior that nobody, ex, you know, accepts. When Jesus is speaking here in the book of Revelation, he leads with the cowardly, the faithless. Tim Keller says, Christians who've experienced the resurrection of Christ are people who are living in this world with the energy of the next. Okay, what does that mean? They're people who've received the resurrection and they're living right now with a future power. Okay, and that future power is meant to make us courageous. Now, what does that mean? What is courage? C.S. Lewis says, courage isn't one of the virtues. Courage is all of the virtues at their testing point. So when things get tough, it takes courage, okay? When you get impatient, it takes courage to continue to be patient with that person. When you're resisting sin in whatever way it is, it takes courage to fight through it. I think it's very, now listen, we, we heard that. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians. The reason I went there, I'll show you in a second here. Paul is going to say, if you understand the resurrection and not just cognitively get it, like you've been taught it in Sunday school, but it's, you've received it and the resurrection has changed you as a person. You staring at the beauty of it and it's, it's captured you. Listen. If that has happened to you, you will be in possession of a power from the future. The first fruits of resurrection will be within you. And one of the things that power will do in you is make you courageous. Now, where do I see that? Let's go to verse 29. First off, I got I to gotta briefly mention this because we're all weirded out by it. He taught first 29 and 30. He's talking about people that have been baptized on behalf of the dead. Okay. We have no other spots in scripture for this. This was not a command. He's not saying go be baptized on the behalf of the dead. So it's not something we do. It was a practice that evidently was being practiced by some people in Corinth. We have no idea. There's, there's over at least 40 different opinions by the top scholars alive today on what this baptism of the dead could mean. But here's what we do know. The way we read scripture, this is not a prescriptive text. It doesn't tell us, go be baptized on behalf of the dead. It says he's using what a practice they're already doing to make his point about the resurrection of the dead. Okay. So if any of you want to be baptized on behalf of somebody, I'm going to tell you no. Okay, we don't do that around here, but they were doing it there, it seems. Okay, now let's keep going in verse 32. He's been talking about the resurrection in verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Now, the beasts at Ephesus, there was an amphitheater there. They did throw uh, Christians to the animals, to the lions, and to, to bears and, and watch them uh, be killed. Uh, for sport, but Paul didn't. Paul never fought 
uh, the beasts at Ephesus that we know of. But Paul did when he was preaching and planted a church in Ephesus. We see it in the book of Acts. There's a, he, 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 there's a God there called Artemis. There's a huge temple to Artemis. And he says, this God is false. Jesus Christ is the real true God. And he tells them all, burn your books, burn all your witchcraft stuff. And they do it. And it puts the, the, um, the artisans around that area would make little, uh, little how, what trinkets of the temple and they would sell here's your little god artemis or here's your little god and they would sell these little trinkets so when when these all all these people turned from the false god turned from these pagan religions and embraced jesus christ it put a lot of people out of business so it's literally started a riot and they were yelling and chanting and screaming great is artemis and they pushed him into the uh uh and they pushed him out and they basically started a huge riot. And he, he literally, he didn't physically fight with them, but he had to resist them. And he almost lost his life. And he almost lost his life several times. And, and Paul says, why would I have done that if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why would I have stood against this mob that's trying to kill me and preach Jesus Christ? And here's the deal. Guys, let me just say it like this. Paul was no crossfitter. Okay. Paul was no bodybuilder. Paul was no professional football player. Paul was no mixed martial artist. Paul was a scholar. Right? That means when you shook his hand, right, it crumpled. Right? Oh, he's been spending lots of time with books. Right? There's no calluses. There's no... This is a pro- professor. How many of you have been to school and been to college and sit across your professor and really like, man, that is... A, daunting man of a man. And I'm not saying anything against professors, but anyway, right? But you know what I mean, right? He, you, very few of us would go, you know what? Who's the most courageous person you've ever met? Oh, my professor, my math professor, that guy could just, right? That's who Paul was. Paul was a professor, a scholar, a man of learning and books. And yet when the resurrection of resurrected Jesus Christ shows up and the resurrection enters into him, he gets this new power. He gets this new power from the future. He gets this new boldness and this new confidence that it doesn't matter what you can do to me. Throw me to the lions. Okay. Throw me to the lions. Fast track to my new created body. Right? He says, if the resurrection isn't true, I never would have stood up to the riots. I never would have stood up to the whole city against me. Keep reading. Verse 32. What do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It says, wake up. From your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Now, if you know Paul, now if you grew up in the church, you think that's a common statement. That is not a common statement for Paul. This is the most jacked up church in all the New Testament. People sleeping with their father's wife. Uh, people getting drunk at the communion table. Uh, people suing each other. This is a jacked up church. And Paul starts the whole thing off by saying, brothers and sisters, Jesus has made you saints. Jesus has washed you and clean, cleansed you. He starts off by speaking all this good gospel news to them about forgiveness and grace and mercy. So when he looks at them and he says, now stop, wake up and stop sinning. That's not a common statement for Paul. 
But for Paul, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the power that's at work in the human body who's received Jesus Christ, the future power, the future reality that is at work in him, it makes fighting our sin and killing our sin possible. 100% absolutely not. It makes courageous men and women. I just love how Paul thinks here. Paul does not buy into the lie that people just need some nice practical teaching that meets their felt needs. For Paul, theology drives practice. You have a church that's going crazy. You have a church that's involved in all kind of wickedness and all kind of sin. You have a church that can't love each other well. You have a church that has no courage. When the going gets tough, they give in. When it's hard to love someone, they walk away and they complain about them and they they gossip about them. They don't know how to love someone who's unlovely. When the going gets tough, they fail. That's a lack of courage. That's being a coward. And Paul doesn't go, stop being a coward. He goes, you've forgotten the resurrection. Do you know who you are? Do you know what Christ has done? Do you know the power at work in you? The very power that's going to take the whole galaxy and recreate it for the glory of God, where God will be all in all and dwell with us and walk with us and talk with us. And there will be no death and no tears and no crying. The power that is going to do that, the power that has done that in Jesus Christ, that power is in you in first fruits. Goodness gracious. Theology drives behavior. How? Theology affects the mind, what goes into the mind. We meditate on, we contemplate it, we see the beauty of it, we gaze at it, and our heart is changed by it. Our affections are turned by it. What we want and what we love and what we see as good is changed by it. Paul says, Your misunderstanding of the resurrection is having personal and practical implications in your life. How many of us go, oh, the resurrections, check, I believe that. And we have no idea what we're talking about. Misunderstanding the resurrection makes cowards of men and women. Unable to resist, resist sometimes even to the point of death. Unable to resist temptation. Unable to be kind when I want to lash out. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. That's Lewis. The resurrection gives us courage today. We can die today, but we can give up this life because we know that Christ has already sown the seeds of my resurrected body in my flesh. It gives me moral courage so I can fight my sin and deny my flesh because resurrection is already at work in me. Think about that. The new creation, Justin, has already been sown in me and it's growing. Now, it might be this little green shoot, right? But it's growing. 
Jesus says you can't even put a seed in the ground. That seed you put in the ground, it has to die first. And once it dies, it comes to life. We're going to learn more about that next week. We're going to learn more about what does this new created body look like? What is it for? So I think I'm challenging us this morning. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you gaze at it? Do you think about it? Do you meditate on it? Has the resurrection come into you? Has it captured you? Has it implanted you? Are you growing in fearlessness? Some of us, we're so afraid. We're so dominated by a spirit of fear. You're afraid to commit financially to giving. That's fear. You need courage. You need to look at the resurrection. If God can take a dead person and make him alive, right? Make him walk away around with a new created body and preach and speak and do miracles. If God can do that, what can God do for your finances? You think he can take care of you? If he is taking this entire cosmos and recreating it, do you think he can maybe help you find a job, keep a job, pay the bills, be generous? Fearlessness in giving. Or, or are you a person that you give until whoop, you give until it bites you back, or you give until it just, you know, you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Maybe you're afraid to commit to a church. I don't want to be a member. I like to keep my options open. Just waiting for Justin to say something really stupid so I can leave and go somewhere else. I'm waiting for people to get a little too close. Once people get too close and they find out about me, I got to go. I don't want anybody. I got to keep this facade up that I'm actually better than I think. I'm actually better than they think. That, that I'm not a sinner who's broken internally, who needs the grace of God. Listen, people ask me all the time, Justin, you have a, kind of a negative view of human nature. I've read the Bible and I've seen my own heart that your illusions of me are completely that illusions. I doubt as much or more than you. I struggle as much or more than you. I sin as much or more than you. (gasps) Yeah. If if you (gasps) just go somewhere else and you won't know that pastor's sin. Until you get close enough to them. Or you won't know that missional community sin until you get close enough to them. And then you can be all offended about it. And you can go somewhere and you can do what you want to do. And have a little church in your own home. Watching TV. Watching a podcast. Just getting fed. And I'm just doing my spiritual thing. Fear. That's fear. That's fear. Afraid to get into a small group, afraid to get into a missional community because you're like, oh, what if I don't like the group? What if I don't click with these people? What if these people ask me to do something I don't want to do? What if they challenge me on my schedule or my priorities or the way I spend my money or why I'm not involved in mission and, and, and bringing people to, the, to Christ or I'm not sharing my faith? Or what if they challenge me on it? We're dominated. By a spirit of fear. Listen, do you see how wrong that is in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul says, what can man do to me? 
If God is for me, who can be against me? Paul knew it, man. You can kill this body. He, he was so confused. He was so, he had such a great view of the beatific vision of who God was. He was like, man, that, you, know what, you know what the real question is, is do I want to stay here? That's the real question. Man, I mean, I really like to preach and I like to see God save people. A new resurrection happen to people. I really like that. And it's good for you guys when I preach that and they hear that. But man, when I die, I'm going to be with him. And he's going to be all in all. And then I'm going to come back with a new created body. And he's going to reign and rule. And he's going to put death. I can't watch. I can't wait to watch Jesus defeat death once and for all. He's already punched a hole in it. Now he's going to come back and reign over it. I think the amount of time you spend meditating on the resurrection has a direct correlation to the amount of courage you have. And that's my, that was, that's my goal this morning. I think Paul in here, he just shows his moral courage, his physical courage, willing to stand up and preach in, in, in hostile situations, willing to fight his sin and not be okay with it. He straight up says, the reason you can't do it is because you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Bold words. What's he talking about? You have no knowledge of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, what a text. What a concept. I look around the world and I see so much brokenness and I see so much wrong and I see so much hurt and pain. But also, Father, I see beauty. I see hope. I see grandeur. I see glory. And I don't want this world to be destroyed. I don't want to just float off into heaven. That sounds so unappealing. I want you, the creator, to make this world better. I want you to make all things new. Father, when I know that, when I read in scripture and I know that's the telos, that's the goal, you're going to be all in all, you're going to recreate everything, even me, that the work you're doing in me and you're, the work you're inspiring in us that we're to go out and do our work for the glory of God. And that's what we're doing is we're bringing some of that new creation that's going to take place. We're bringing that here. And every good work we do in our bodies on this world will last into eternity. That's exciting to me, Father. I want to know. I want to know more about the resurrection. I want to know more about what you're doing. I want to know more how you're working in us now. You're going to take everything that's broken and you're going to make it right. And Father, I pray right now for those in, in this room who feel the weight of their brokenness. They feel separated from you. They feel separated from loved ones. They feel separated from Grace, they feel broken and hurting. 
I pray that you would speak the reality and the truth of the resurrection in their heart, that you sit on the throne right now. A man sits on the throne of the universe for us, ruling and reigning for us. You control all things and right now you are at work making all things new. And our death is not the end. Our death is nothing but a seed in the ground that gives birth to new life. God, would you saturate us with courage that comes from the knowledge of the resurrection? Would you shock us with the beauty that comes from the the sight and the the seeing of the resurrection? And would you make us very perceptive of the sprouts of new creation that we see in this world, this broken world right now? Every time we see grace, every time we see forgiveness, every time we see kindness, you're at work. You're making all things new. Every good gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. And there is a day coming, Father, where you will be all in all. We will see you face to face. We will worship you as you are. We will walk with you in the cool of the day. We will still work, but it will be enjoyable. We will still love, but it will be all. We, we can't even imagine what's gonna, what the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. It's better than anything we could possibly imagine. And Jesus, you say to the thirsty, you would give the water of life. We are thirsty this morning. And we ask for your drink. We ask that you would satisfy us. For those in this room, Father, that, have ne- that, it, that they would consider themselves as an unbeliever, they would consider themselves as an outsider or um, not a follower of Jesus, I pray that they would catch a glimpse of the glory of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for the believers in this room, as we come to take your body and your blood this morning, may we be once again overwhelmed, overwhelmed that we look to Jesus with a resurrected body and we see our future. And we see the power that's at work in us now. We glorify you. We worship you. May we turn from our sin. May we turn from our small thoughts. May we turn from our cowardice. And may you, the power of your resurrection, make us courageous followers of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.